Welcome to the Lady Palace Podcast. We are your hosts, Bella and Amanda. We're just a couple of gals who are on a mission to shake up the status quo around women's health. Come and delve into the depths with us as we start the conversations to empower, educate, create change and connect you back home into your lady house. Now it's up to every woman to know what's inside of the ovaries, the womb, every part of her vagina. They're different sizes, shapes and all colors. Life starts from a yoni straight from our mothers. Fertility. New creation and the taboo. Let's start a conversation. Your yoni is your homie, so lift her up higher. Ladies, say you're proud. I love my vagina. Woman, power, goddess, flower, lady, palace, click, click, boom. I'm a woman and my body is a temple, and my yoni is connected to my mental. All right, it's the Boom Tang Clan with Valerie and Amanda. Welcome to another episode of the Lady Palace podcast. In this episode, we interview the amazing Dr. Sarah McKay, who is an increasingly influential brain health commentator, neuroscientist and presenter, specializing in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, mental health and well-being. This was such an incredible conversation with Sarah into women's brains, our hormones, and how we as women can navigate each stage in our life cycle through the lens of neuroscience. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and get as much out of it as we did. So today on our podcast, we have Dr. Sarah McKay, and I have a copy of her book that she's written here. The Women's Brain Book, uh, which I was drawn to this book. I was walking through the airport and I saw this and I thought, oh my God, I've got to get my hands on this. And so I bought myself a copy and this book has just been absolutely fascinating. Um, All the topics that you cover through this book, sort of really the female lifespan and how our brain modulates and changes during these different phases of our life, but also too to really, you know, what I took from it as well is that as women, we are all hormonal, is that everything in our life really affects our hormones, um, but then also to our cognitive function and changes within the brain. Um, how we start our podcast is we always ask what day we are on on our cycle. Um, so Bella, today, where um, are you currently in your cycle? Day one and feeling great. <laughs> so great. But yeah, day one. So yeah. you're, you've started your bleed today. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. How, and how are you feeling? Uh, not like so great I think leading up to my cycle was actually fine um and it has been like a non-event but now that I'm in it it's like I'm feeling it and Sarah can talk us through cognitive function related to our menstrual cycle because I feel like I'm not I'm not there I'm not fully (laughs) I'm not a sharp (laughs) I am Sarah whereabouts are you well, I um, am slightly perimenopausal these days, so mm-hmm. I was starting to get, I'm in my mid-40s, mm-hmm. and I was starting to 
uh, get lots of hot flashes, especially at night. And I had a couple of months of sleeping very poorly, so I went and saw my obstetrician. Well, that's been obstetrician anymore when you're perimenopausal, gynecologist. <laughs> and I am now taking um, the oral contraceptive pill um, constantly uh-huh. without break. So I don't have a disciple day anymore. <laughs> I no longer have hot flashes and I'm sleeping and my skin is amazing. So I'm you know, feeling oh, a million dollars. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And Mans, where are you? I am day 27. So coming up for my bleed and I can feel it. We've all started cycling in the clinic together. So we're, we're all around tune. the same time. Mm. We're all in tune. Uh, so Sarah, could you please share with our listeners a little bit about your journey and how you've come to writing your books? Mm. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's a, I'm I'm not the kind of person that had a had a, like a deep burning desire in me to write a book. I wrote a PhD thesis about fifteen years ago now, and I think you know I've pretty got a bit of bit of trauma <laughs> from writing a, that. If you consider that a book, um, yes. certainly. I mean, I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I worked in medical research for about five years after I did my, did my PhD research. Um, I worked in, in, in neuroscience research, so I've always been very interested in how the brain wires up during development, and um, and also I guess a lot of my postdoc work was around injury, so I was working on spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got very frustrated with um, a number of aspects of academia. I loved the people I worked with, loved being in a university, but got very frustrated with um, chasing research grants. It's just very very hard. Um, and and having to narrow down on a specific field, and that's kind of half the course. I mean, I suppose in any kind of um, discipline, but especially in academia, you know, having to yes. become an expert, you have to become an expert on something very small. <laughs> and I joke that you're often, often become an expert in almost nothing because you're narrowing down so much. Mm-hmm. And the further along I got in my academic career, I realised I really missed the early years when I got to look at the big picture yes. and, and, and be able to kind of, consider lots of different concepts within the world of, of health and medicine and, and neuroscience. Um, so after it took me many years of self-searching to work up kind of the bravery to do that, I, um, I, I hung up my lab coach and mm-hmm. set myself up, um, work, started working for myself, um, um, set up my own business in science communication. So I, was, I, was kind of, I did that for about 10 years. I've had two, two children at that time. I've got two boys who are 9 and 11. So really, you know, it was one of those kind of life transitions around the time I was having my first baby was sort of when I set up my business. And I think a lot of people, a lot of women especially, are really familiar with those kinds of, yes. you know, those, those kind of phases of life um, often open up kind of different phases of, you know, all kinds of aspects, not just reproductive life, but, you know, a new career. Creativity. Um, so I've been, I've been working for myself, talking about brains to other people, um, health professionals and just, you know, Jane, Jane Public um, for about a decade. Now, and so it was in mid-2016, I, I got a phone call one day from a very, very charismatic lady, Jeanne Rickmans, who has since become a book agent. Um, and she was kind of like, do you want to write a book? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> no, go on. And I was like, oh, no, no, thanks. Anyway, she was very charismatic, and so we met over a cup of coffee. I was saying no because, honestly, I, I just didn't really have any 
I didn't have the big idea, and I, and I really believe that you need an idea. Um, and I knew the kind of person I am. I would have to devote, if, you know, I, 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 I throw myself into these things. I would have to devote a lot mm. of time. To, if I was going to write a book, I was going to write a really good book. Good book. Fulfill my exceedingly ridiculously type A. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have an idea that would motivate me to reach that lofty goal. Um, so we sort of started chatting um, over coffee, and she's quite charismatic, which is why I agreed to have coffee with her. And washed my phone. And um, sorry about that, it should be on mute. Um, and she said, oh, look, forget about ideas. She said, tell me what you have ever written for an audience that has ever resonated. And that was easy because I was writing at that point for the ABC um, and I'd written an article on menopause and brain fog um, because a lot of women, when they go through menopause, not all women, but some women experience kind of fogginess and forgetfulness and they're very worried. It's the first signs of Alzheimer's disease. And this article is basically saying, look, brain fog happens in some women. We don't necessarily know the causes, um, but it'll probably go away and it's not Alzheimer's disease. We had the most amazing response to that article. Um, so I told Jan that, and she said, here's your book idea. And I was like, I've got a book about menopause. Because <laughs> at that point, I was, you know, four years ago now, I was 40. Um, and then she said, oh, well, what about baby brain? Is that a thing? And I went, no, that's... Because I, I had never heard of baby brain when I was had my boys out uh-huh. the Kiwi, and we have a Jacinda Ardern as a prime minister, <laughs> yes. and she's doing quite fine. Isn't so she? we don't do baby brain in New Zealand, <laughs> um, and so I was very like, no, that's that's as dismissive of that. And then I, I kind of went, well, you know, I've been a neuroscientist for twenty five years, and I uh-huh. have never really before considered, um, you know, various aspects, I guess of. Our, our female biology through the lens of neuroscience. Mm. And I just had all of these ideas. I thought, well, you know, I know that there's, the brain controls the onset of puberty. I wonder what happens mm. to our brains during the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that there was some very new research out about the brain during pregnancy. Um, you know, I thought we could look at anxiety and depression and the gender gap. We could look why yes. more women diagnosed with Alzheimer's than men. Um, obviously, there's menopause. So there was, I was like, well, gosh, there's, there's, there's a book. There's the book. I'm quite enthused, mostly because so many of these topics, I kind of joke, it was a book about the pill and periods and pregnancy and puberty. All of these, I didn't know about the neurobiology of them. Mm. 25 years mm. of neuroscience, and I hadn't really thought about women's health in that way. Yeah. So that's kind of how the book was born. <laughs> Amazing. Love mm. that. And then it took me over a year to write it. And so did you uh, Did you have to do a lot of research to write the book as well? Yeah, I did a ton of research. And I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a scientist and a science communicator, so mm-hmm. that's kind of the basis of, of what I do. And I did not know um, – I knew a little bit about um, early development, child development, and I knew quite a lot about um, ageing. So I knew sort of chapter one. And <laughs> the end. Yeah. End. I didn't know anything <laughs> in between. So – it was interesting because initially I, I was going to have puberty in the menstrual cycle as one chapter and then I very quickly realised there's not a lot of content so I had to separate out puberty in the menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know the first thing about, I mean, I, I knew that there was a, like a, a hypothalamic pituitary um, ovarian axis, like, yes. you know, 
there was these various hormonal neuroendocrine, you know, um, feedback loops in our bodies, but I didn't really know the details. And when you're writing about a medical topic or a health or a science topic, um, whether you're an expert in that field or not, you kind of need to, to know one step mm. ahead of your reader to be able to, to be able to explain an idea very simply. So I had to do a really uh, an awful lot of research and then kind of rein back in the ideas. So so I, I would I would read the, the academic literature. I would speak to doctors. I would speak to scientists. I speak to women's health experts. Um, you know, I, I would read books. I, I spent you know every waking hour wow. <laughs> researching and writing and thinking about the ideas in the book. So it was, because it was a very intense, incredibly satisfying. Um, experience and, and I guess for me I didn't know you know I, I didn't go in with any particular agenda yes any particular kind of perspective on women's health um I went in as a neuroscientist going hey well it's really interesting let's have take a look at what happens to the brain during the menstrual cycle let's have a look at what happens to the brain when you're pregnant because mm. um, what I just, felt you know the curiosity of, of, a, of a scientist rather than any particular agenda and so it was incredibly interesting mm. um for me what I what I found out and what I learned and that's, and that's exactly what comes across in your book as well is that it's so well documented and just the, the language of how you're able to describe everything. And I found what I found fascinating was of when you were talking about the change in hormones as an embryo is developing. And so our hormones really also influence the development of, of embryonically, don't they? Well, male hormones do, female hormones don't. Because a female fetus doesn't produce any hormones of her own. The only hormones that are produced and that can have any influence on the brain and a, and a baby, um, uh, well, the, the only hormones that can influence brain development in a, in a, in a fetus are a male hormone. So testosterone can um, influence the male brain, but it's the absence of testosterone that influences the development of the female brain. So there's a bit of kind of, you know, the, the, that we used to say something like the female fetus develops by default and stuff. Like yeah. Yes. I love that part of the book. Is, which I don't read the, the semantics really, but, but, but you know, it's destined to be female unless the yes. um, reproductive system switches on and there's a particular gene that switches on at a particular early point in development, um, which causes a development of testes. Te- the, 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 which release testosterone at that point of development and that influences and shapes the male brain to become male mm. without that influence the female the, 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 the fetus develops as a female so it's kind of the absence of female hormones I love that so <laughs> that's the only time so we're destined to be female right. that yeah. we don't have those hormones <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah love that well, maybe then for our listeners, are you able to kind of, I guess, snapshot from your book, the different phases that we go through? So you mentioned like from utero to childhood to kind of give the listeners a little bit of a snapshot into what does happen throughout those phases and our brain and the hormones. Oh, that's, big, that's, that's the whole book. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you can quite summarize it. I mean, I suppose the book kind of takes a worm to turn look across the lifespan, and I had to kind of pick particular points in, in life which were which were interesting. And I, and I suppose it's probably also quite important to convey that it says, what does it say? Health, hormones, and happiness. What came up at time and time again through the book 
was that hormones were just one voice in the crowd. Even if you were considering the onset of puberty, even if you were considering um, pregnancy, even if you were considering menopause, you were considering you know, other times where there may be variations in hormones, even across the, 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 the course of the month. Hormones were not always the loudest voice in the crowd. And I, at the very beginning of the book, I present a model which is loosely based on the biopsychosocial model, which is that, you know, what influences and shapes our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviours? Let's take a look at thoughts and emotions and behaviours from the perspective of the brain. Well, of course, there's our biology, and I call that bottom-up. And that includes hormones, but also includes a lot of other things like how we're moving our bodies, you know, the exercise, the food, you know, are we sleeping in sync with the light-dark cycle? Mm. There's the outside world, you know, external stressful events, the people we're connected with, which I actually think of the loudest voice in the crowd, mm. um, how connected are we with nature or not? So there's the outside in. Yeah. And then the other influences are top-down, so our thoughts, our mindsets and our expectations, and they are in the same way almost as powerful as hormones. Absolutely. So I think what I discovered, I, I very much went in thinking this is going to be a book about female biology and hormones. But what I learned was that at every phase in the lifespan, um, hormones were one voice in the crowd. So we could take a look at puberty, for example, and of course hormones kind of kickstart a lot of the changes that take place say, in a little girl's body. But what shapes her experience of, of, of puberty um, you know, a lot of it is around her thoughts and her feelings about yes. puberty. Um, the social context in which she is experiencing puberty, does she develop a little bit earlier the same or a little bit later than her friends? The stories that she's perhaps been told, are they positive or negative about, you know, her first period? What is her experience like that like? Um, yeah. So hormones are in there. Yes. But they're not, as I say, they're not the loudest voice in the crowd all the time. Mm. And I think... That, that to me was one of the surprises when I started writing the book. Um, and I do think it's an important message to share because when we think about our experiences of what is happening to us, it's nice to have a bit of agency over that. Um, and if we kind of make the assumption that we're riding a hormonal roller coaster that we can't get off, it kind of removes a little bit of our agency over our expectations and our responses to yes. what is happening to us. You know, life isn't happening to us. Yes. Uh, you know, our ovaries aren't kind of driving the car. Yes. Um, I, and, I, and I think for me that was a really important learning um, from the book. And, I mean, there's lots of kind of there's lots of times in the book when I think, you know, talk about the, the research I did on PMS, you know, the research yes. on pregnancy. Um, and and even, in, even menopause, these large hormonal shifts, yep. they opened up windows of vulnerability or opportunity when – the outside world and thoughts and feelings often play a, la- a large role in, in the hormones themselves. Mm. And because that's the thing in, a, in Chinese medicine, when we're seeing a patient is that we look at all those things. So we take a holistic approach and we'll look at nutrition and we'll look at lifestyle factors. We'll look at sleep. We'll also look at what was your first menstrual cycle? Like what age did you have that first menstrual cycle? Because you know, what we see is that what young women go through at an early age can then most definitely shape them into um, womanhood and into motherhood and then also into menopause. And yeah. it's, 
And so that's what I, that's what I took from your book as well. It was like, we are shaped by our thoughts and feelings and how that impacts our emotional wellness, our mental state. And you, you, you spoke about, um, anxiety and depression and, one thing that I took as well, it was you, you spoke about the brain actually. Now, does the brain, can you share, does the brain actually shrink when we're pregnant? No. It's just parts of the brain, the gray matter. It's really important to think about the language we use as well when we talk about that. So there's, there is an effort, there is a very, very fascinating study, one of my favorite studies that I wrote about in the book, looking at, at the changes that take place in women's brains during their first pregnancy. Um, and the changes are so significant that an artificial intelligence, you know, machine can go in and read brain scans and say, she's had a baby, she hasn't, and get it with 100% accuracy. Wow. Now, what we see is the same regions in all of these women's brains um, change significantly that they were scanned before the pregnancy and a few weeks after their, their first pregnancy. Now, some regions in the brain got a little bit thinner in areas mm-hmm. of cortex, now, you could use the word shrink, and that sounds like you're losing a bit of brain. But when teenagers go through um, adolescent brain development, the prefrontal cortex, the very adult part of their brain, as it becomes more adult-like and it refines its function, it gets a bit leaner. And that's because it's kind of streamlining and getting better at what it's doing. Processing. The same thing happens in women's brains when they're pregnant. So we could use the word, oh, your brain shrinks. That That's kind of a bit loaded. What happens is the structure changes and the parts, these particular parts of the brain become leaner because they're getting better at their job. Mm. They're kind of getting rid of all of the superfluous connections. Mm. And the parts of the brain that change change uh, or become leaner during pregnancy are involved with social cognition mm. and, and empathy, so being able to read kind of the thoughts and feelings of other people and interact with other people. So that means that pregnancy is – there's one time when hormones are – you it's know, like you have your mother's intuition. You, it's like, Sorry. it's I just I describe it. It's like mother's intuition. Everything just becomes. It's like a sieve. All of a sudden, yeah. everything that you. It's kind of like biology's sort of shortcut to mm-hmm. motherhood. It means women are more. You not always because of course you don't need to have been pregnant to be a mother. Dads can do it just as well. They just need to learn, um, and it certainly doesn't mean if you've had a pregnancy that you're going to be a good mother. Um, obviously, but it's kind of a, a bit of a shortcut to be able to both, of the, you know, the, your baby's emotions and be able to read your baby mm. um, and also connect, you know, with that village or that tribe. It's not just the baby, but it's, it's the other people around you developing mm. empathy. And lots of women going through their first pregnancy, will, will, and I know I was like that, you know, you, everything kind of reaches at your heartstrings a whole lot more. Mm. Um, and we know it's not the experience of parenting because the, the husband's, um, or the partners, the male partners of those women were, 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 were scanned before and after the pregnancy uh-huh. as well. And so it wasn't the act of parenting, it was, it was the pregnancy. And we know that the same thing happens in, in other mammals, female mammals, when they mm-hmm. have their babies, parts of the brain involved in maternal instincts um, are sculpted. So yes. that those mothers, when they have their babies, kind of know what to do. Mm. Amazing. Cause I had that, um, I felt like I did have baby brain with my first and not my second. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the baby brain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously I was a skeptic because I've never <laughs> experienced it. So my N, N equals one. Um, and, and interesting, I'd never heard about it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a thing. Until mm. many, uh, many years after I had my babies and I had people talking about baby brain, I was like, what's, what's that? I started a new job when I was pregnant with, um, 
with my first son, and it was incredibly stimulating and new, and it was absolutely fine. Um, and I do think baby brain is a new phenomenon. It's only been recently described in Western societies when a lot of women started going back into the workforce in the 1970s. Prior to that, it was it was not a, it was not a thing. Interestingly, it's incredibly well studied. Cognition during pregnancy is very, very well studied in women, um, and it's also very, very well studied in the animal kingdom. Um, if we look to the animal kingdom, and we also look at our own biochemical sort of signatures of pregnancy, the hormones that we're exposed to during pregnancy, a thousand times more estrogen than you can get in the rest of your life, and we look to the animal kingdom, pregnancy sets us up to be cognitively sharper. Pregnancy makes us, in theory... And what we see in the animal kingdom, smarter, you know, quicker to solve puzzles, um, you know, quicker to defend against predators, able to find your way through a maze if you're a rat. Um, numerous studies have been done looking at cognition in women, groups of women who are pregnant versus non-pregnant women, women before, during, and after their first pregnancy. There are very few studies that show any evidence of cognitive decline during pregnancy. Mm. So this whole baby brain thing and doesn't doesn't really appear to have a lot of scientific support. Now, why do women then think they have baby brain? I suspect it might be well. There's a, there's a number of theories. I sometimes think you forget something when you're pregnant, or you you know whatever you then blame the baby. If my dad, who's seventy, forgets where he's put his keys, he worries he has dementia. My my nine and eleven year olds can't remember where anything. I'm not pregnant or <laughs> I sometimes think we're looking for something to a hook to hang our hat on. Yes. Um, a label for something. Or, that, that's, that's perhaps so so expectations are very powerful. Now, there are some studies that show there is a little bit of kind of um baby brain, if that's a word you want to use, and some women in their last trimester of pregnancy. But it's not related to the, to, to the hormones of pregnancy or anything happening to their brain. It's, it's huge lack of sleep. Yes. Mm. It's really hard to sleep in your final trimester of pregnancy because you're big and you're just kind of awake a lot of the time anyway. That is closely related to feeling yes. fuzzy. Yes. Um, more so than the pregnancy itself. And the other idea as to why some women experience this been on labs, life is busy, you're pregnant, you do have, you are subconsciously multitasking. Mm. Your attention is kind of constantly flipping. You know, the baby's yes. always in the back of your, baby in your belly is always in the back of your mind. So you can't always devote 100% of your attention to all the other things that you've got to do. Yes. When you've always got that little bit of a distraction there, bring women into a nice, you know, calm, you know, cool research labs, sit her down. Doesn't have to work. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't, you know, you, you might be great, you know, have an afternoon off everything and do some little maths tests and you do just fine. Yeah. Yes. you're not distracted. That's so right. So I, I am of the belief, um, being a Kiwi who's had a pregnant prime minister um, who did doing a great job. Absolutely. I think we need to start reconsidering the stories that we tell ourselves. Yes, hundred yes, percent. Because estrogen is like the magic hormone, isn't it? It's a cognitive enhancer, and mm. if we've got these sky high levels of it, why do we insist on kind of blaming them for maybe being a bit forgetful? Mm. And I also, and I also think it's too, um, particularly for me, it was running a business. 
Um, it was doing long days at work and just a constant sort of daily of um, pulsation of stress as well. And we know what the impacts that stress can have on the body um, as well. That can then affect your sort of your cognitive function. So because your body's sending so much energy to the baby. Yeah. And so uh, leading into sort of how you were talking about your cognitive function coming into menopause, um, that a big part of your book does highlight that, you know, our livelihood does affect our biology. So we are influenced by our genetics and we are influenced by the people that we spend time with and sleep and nutrition. And so heading into menopause, um, why is it that sort of women do tend to experience more hot flushes and which part, and we know that, you know, estrogen is on the decline, um, how we can sort of, how we can help women to ease that transition into menopause. Yeah. Well, I guess right now it's still a chicken and egg scenario. So we don't know, I mean, hot flashes are kind of the, the most, you know, the vasomotor symptoms, the most predominant um, kind of unambiguous symptom of, of, of menopause because there's a lot of, you know, our, our, our emotional state um, can be influenced by so, so, so many things and, and, it's, and it's a very subjective measure. So it's kind of quite hard to measure that and determine what caused, what caused it. But we know, it, um, you know, it's pretty much without doubt that declining levels of hormones or certainly fluctuating levels of, of, of the ovarian hormones um, narrow with the brain's thermostat. So, you know, you're, you've got a thermostat in your brain and which you kind of, you know, can be a bit hotter, a bit cold quite comfortably during menopause, that narrows. So, you know, you're, you're, the, the temperatures at which you get hotter and colder narrow. And I, I mean, having just gone through a few months of this, it's it's quite, it's quite striking. Um, I was waking at night and just these surges of heat going through my body. And it was middle of winter, it was and the last time I kind of remember that was um, in the very early days of breastfeeding my first son, you know, when your hormones are all kind of all over the place, these night sweats, yes. you throw the covers off because it's so hot, and then fall asleep and 20 minutes later, wake up freezing cold because it's wintering, mm. covers on, and, and I was doing that, and it's because your thermostat's gone whoop, narrowed. Right. Um, I'm doing this, I'm making hand signals here in an audio recording. Um, <laughs> so we know. Know that hormones are responsible for that because if you replace those hormones, those symptoms largely go away. Now, what then is the knock-on effect for? Well, I know for me, I was then sleepy and emotional, and I'm the world's best sleep, sleepy and emotional because I wasn't getting enough sleep. So I was like, how can I? Um, I, 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 pretty, I pretty much knew where the, uh, the, the the crankiness came from. It was from the lack of sleep caused by the hot flash. So for me, yes. I, I could figure that out. Um, and I was on the oral contraceptive pill for very many years and never had a problem with it. And, and through my research for the book, a, a very clear understanding of the risks and benefits decided yep. to go into the oral contraceptive pill to replace the hormones, to level out the roller coaster for the next five or eight years and move on with my life. Mm. Not every woman wants to make that decision and, and that's absolutely fine. It's up to you to make your mm. personal decision about you know, what the risks and benefits. For me, the benefits outweigh the risks by many, many times. Um, well, because then that way you can no, function. Like, it's being able to function. It comes back to being It comes back to being able to function, you know, if you're experiencing. I, think, um, I remember speaking to one, one um, woman's health specialist who said, you know, I've got women coming in and they've suffered through these years and years of 
terrible menopausal symptoms because of resistance of wanting to do anything about it. And he says he's got women giving up work. And he says, I have other women who've been treated with cancer who aren't giving up work. So there seems to be a really interesting mind shift and almost shame around women um, wanting to talk about menopausal symptoms or be accepting of it. And I'm, you know, the age I am now, so many of my friends, you know, we're all starting to experience these symptoms. And part of it is around... Um, one of my girlfriends, so similar to me, started having hot flashes at night, and I said, "Oh, I'm just, I'm just trying to ignore it and hope it'll go away." Oh, okay, but like that, um, you know, I think it's almost like, how can I possibly have got to be this old already? I think it's a big part. Mm, we just have babies. It know, comes so. to, it comes to acceptance. I really think, you know, it's. If we yeah. and if you look over at the Eastern cultures for women that are going through menopause in China and India, it's a real acceptance into that sort of next stage yeah. of their life. Whereas mm. I feel yeah. like that's, that's, we're that's in denial. It's a, yeah, it's a cultural and societal yeah. acceptance. Yeah. That's right. Whereas here, it's not. There's mm. this absolute, you know, glorification of the young, useful, Instagrammable, you know, girl in her twenties. Mm. We don't have that here. And, and for my generation of women in their mid-40s, you know, we've all been young, fit and healthy, it seems, and then suddenly you're just faced with this next phase of life, and you're not kind of ready. Mm. Um, and I think it's okay to not want to accept it just yet. Um, but I also think that um, I'm also very mindful from a lot of the work I've done is to try and, um, you know, you can struggle with your attitude towards it, but there's also things that you can do to support your, your good health going through. And, and it's like any transition that you go through in life, whether it be having babies or, or, you know, mental health problems or anything. I mean, you just, like I say, take care of yourself from the bottom up, outside and in top down. So yes. it's, it's a really good, you know, point to um, start looking, you know, start, you know, thinking a little bit more closely about the food you eat and That's how right. much you move every day in your sleep. But also, you know, what are those social connections and, and, and networks have you got around you to, you know, kind of find someone else to share the experience with um, and just have a bit of a, you know, we still kind of have a bit of a laugh about it. Um, and then, you know, I, I suppose consider what your thoughts and feelings and expectations are of this next phase of life. And also for me personally, um, I do not have an issue at all and I don't believe that the research um, is counters that that if you don't have the risk factors that there's any problem with taking hormone replacement therapy mm. and quite frankly for me already and I'm taking the oral contraceptive pill what you can do pre the menopause itself um I haven't got any symptoms anymore my skin mm. is so much better than it's been for years and I'm kind of you know I, I don't have a problem with that so I also think there's a lot of fear mm. and negativity around looking towards that as an option as well. And I think I talk about that a lot in the book, yes. about weighing up the risks and the benefits in a really clear, informed, non-fear-based way. Because, yes. it, you know, you should be able to make that decision for you without worrying that, that you know, it's there's something weird about wanting to use a medical option to deal with a natural phase of life definitely and i think also coming back to that um bioindividuality that everyone is a different blend of different hormones and has different experiences throughout their life and has you know had different you know nutritional backgrounds and everything like that so you have to do what works for you at the end of the day and my mum's 50 
three and she's for the past year has been on HRT um, more of she's been seeing a natural um, endocrinologist and he's given her um, mostly progesterone and estrogen creams and things and she's feeling amazing and she was like I never thought that I would have gone down that route um, but she's loved it and feeling incredible and yeah. you have to do yeah. what works for you at the end of the day yeah it's, it's 2019 that's, yeah, <laughs> we've, got, we've got these options here. Um, the women's health studies from kind of the 2002, 2003 that talked a lot about the increased risk of cancers, in particular breast mm. cancer, and there's even been a study that's come out in the last year or so, uh, the last few weeks here in Australia. Um, I mean, the, the, how to communicate, and as a science communicator, I think a lot about this, how to communicate risks versus benefits is very, very complicated. Because mm. as soon as you say the word breast cancer, mm. people freak out. I mean, here in Australia, we've got an 85% survival rate if you get diagnosed early. Um, the stats are, are, are really good. It's not a life sentence anymore. Not that getting it is a good thing. I'm not saying that. But, um, and, you know, your risk for breast cancer has increased more if you have a glass of wine a day than if you're on hormone replacement therapy. Mm. Um, and what are the benefits? If, the, if it means you're sleeping at night and you're not cranky and weepy during the day, um, that is, that to me, that benefit more than outweighs this tiny increased risk of maybe developing breast cancer in two yes, years' time. Yes, because that's your okay. overall quality of life. Yeah, 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 the quality of life, yeah. And, and, and risk is just about what tips the scales one way in, in your favour and another. Mm. I mean, obesity increases risk of cancer massively. Mm. So the lack of sleep increases risk of lots of diseases, including cancer. Yeah. Um, Inflammation. You know, like, yeah. you know, so does depression. So does anxiety. So, you know, you've got to kind of, I think we really need to be very careful about um, the options that we give women and educating them um, in a way that isn't coming from fear and isn't coming from um, mm. a particular agenda. And that's, 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 that's what we... Scientists, that was, that was kind of, I was like, well, isn't that interesting to find out <laughs> the fact about... Because that's what we talk a lot, a lot about on the podcast here is really about educating women so they then can make informed choices that then best supports their health yes. so they can live and thrive. Um, now, coming back to the menstrual cycle, and we were talking about the days that we were on, uh, can you share sort of what happens cognitively throughout our menstrual cycle yes. for our younger Please. listeners? <laughs> yes. So there is no evidence whatsoever to 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 to, to show any. There's no, there's no evidence. Not that I, you know, it's not like I couldn't find it. I spent an awful lot of time looking for it, and I've read a lot of the, the big reviews that have gone and gathered all the evidence. We have no evidence that the day of your menstrual cycle in any way impacts your cognition. So cognition is like your your thinking, your decision making, your memory. Um, you know, day day of the month. Doesn't, doesn't matter, which is great because that's mm. why we can all do things like go to work and be employed and yes. write books and be scientists and engineers and yes. have podcasts because it doesn't matter whether we've got our period or not or what day it is, we can all think just fine. Okay. That's goodness for that. <laughs> that's so, you know, job done there. Oh, wonderful. We can look at emotion. Now, emotion was the, was the really interesting um, thing that I, when I, I started to look at it. So initially I approached it very much from the neuroscience of emotions perspective and when you measure emotions um, and people from that kind of perspective of neuroscience psychology you have to get very granular you don't just ask someone how they're feeling 
because um, that's incredibly subjective. You, you you go in and you can make very very specific measures of particular emotions, such as um, you know something like empathy or um, you know feeling weepy. Um, and and the evidence was very very mixed. If you looked across normal healthy cycling women, um, how much emotions are these very granular measures of emotions changed across the month, and there didn't appear to be very much relationship between cycle day, hormonal status across a normal month and emotions. And I was like, well, that's kind of curious. So mm. I, I thought maybe there would be. Um, but, I mean, none of the lifestyle studies really show much. I said, oh, well, I might go for a bit more of a subjective measure of an emotional thing that a woman experiences. I thought, oh, well, I'll take a look at PMS. Yes. And that's mm. PMT. I thought that's, you know, and for many women, obviously there's the physical symptoms, sore boobs or whatever, um, but but I, I was really interested in, in emotional status. Mm. Do women get more irritable and yes. weepy and cranky? Do, they, do we experience more negative emotions prior to our period? Because certainly that's what we're told happens. Um, the, the, the first kind of thing that made me sit up and take notice was a, was a paper, a large meta-analysis which pulls together data from all over the world looking at reported rates of emotional um, using the word PMS you talk about emotional state not physical symptoms but emotional symptoms looking at it across the world and it varied hugely by country and society so women in um, um, uh, places in Europe like France and Switzerland the rates of women putting their hands up are very low it's about 10 or 15% of women were saying yep I get cranky over to Iran, which was the highest, which was around 95%. Stress. So we've got mm. like 15 to 95% of women saying, yeah, I get cranky, depending on, but it varies by country and by culture. Yeah. And I was like, well, how can it be hormones? Mm. You would, if it was a hormonal thing, you'd expect, you wouldn't expect hardly anyone to almost be Yeah. Them. You wouldn't expect such huge variation, which to me was a huge kind of, I really was surprised by that because I thought if it's a hormonal thing there shouldn't be why is there such huge cultural variations so I was speaking to a woman's health psychiatrist in New Zealand who's called Sarah Sarah Romans obviously she's a subsection she's a psychiatrist so she's seen people in very dire um, you know mental health and, and emotional distress um, and she she too was, was not convinced she said to me that all of the women that she was seeing coming in experiencing emotional distress and blaming hormones. She said, I just don't think it can be hormones in every one of these cases. Mm-hmm. So she designed a very, very clever study called the Mood. It was a Mood and Daily Life study. It's called the Mood and Daily Life study. So a woman, there was a phone app popped up. It was about 400 women. Phone app would pop up every day and they had to put in cycle day, emotional status, levels of how stressed they felt, how emotionally supported they felt, so socially supported, um, and their physical health. Um, two things were different from a lot of studies that have been done on PMS, gathering data on PMS. One was women were given positive and negative emotions to choose from, and neutral emotions, because a lot of them were just like, do you feel upset today and weepy? Or not. It was not like, do you feel creative or upbeat or happy? Mm. So there was a wide range of emotional valence to choose from. Um, and the women were not told, this is key, the women weren't told it's a study on PMS. So when the data was crunched, what was incredibly interesting was only one in 20 of the women in the study showed any clear emotional variation based on time of the month. Right. 19 out of 20 women 
we're not showing these classical signs of feeling highly emotional in the week before their period. Now, mm. what changed when the women were told it was a study on PMS? Totally different data. Really? Very, very interesting. Wow. Like here, so I'm talking to Sarah on the phone going, I was going to, what, do you, you know, what do people think about this? She says, you and lots of people really don't like this. It's not denying women's lived experiences. Well, people think it's denying women's lived experiences. People's experiences of emotions are very, very real. But yes. again, they can be influenced massively by how we are expecting to feel or how we've mm. learned. Obviously not in every you know, this was in 100% of women, it was most women. We're not showing this variation. What She said, what is interesting to look at is what were their emotions more heavily influenced by, by their physical health, by how stressed they felt, surprise, surprise, but most mm. significantly by how socially supported they were feeling. So mm. social connection in the relationships was a, was a far more uh, stronger correlation and determined of, a, of their emotional status than, than, than their hormones. But how telling is that when you tell them it's a study on PMS, suddenly everyone starts experiencing symptoms at this mm. particular time of the month. Mm. So, again, I think it's really interesting, one, not to say PMS isn't a myth and it doesn't exist, but our expectations can can colour um, our experiences. Mm, yes. And kind of lived in a culture that talks about PMS as a thing, um, again, maybe it's a, a hook you're looking to hang your hat on, a bit like baby brain. It's perception. I'm not saying these things aren't real, but maybe when you're not expecting to feel that way, you go, oh, actually, today I feel quite joyful because that was an option I was given. Yeah. And, it's all, and it's also too, you know, that is the that is the um, nature, ebbs and flows of nature. It's, we're the same. We're reflective of nature. We are going to have days where we're up and down. Mm. But I think it's also too, it's like when we look at the hormones that are influenced at the different parts of our cycle is that, you know, when we're releasing estrogen or we're producing estrogen, I always call this the time in our cycle where we've got our angel wings on, we're creative, we're feeling amazing, yeah. we're coming into ovulation it's our most fertile time if we're not trying then we're even more creative we're social, and we're, we're social and then we come into sort of the luteal phase and if there are sort of hormonal imbalances or fluctuations is that we can tend to be less receptive we may want to sort of be more reflective as we head into you know the time for our our menstrual cycle and I feel as like as women, we've definitely lost that, you know, time of being a tribe. Whereas mm. back in the sages, women would come together and they would menstruate and they would share their experience and their stories. And we've kind of lost this. And so does this loss of um, tribe and community, does that influence our hormones um, or does that ha- have a larger play of how we're able to interact I mean, it has a huge role, and I mean, I, I, I don't think we, it's very hard to go. Here's a social network, and what's, what does it do to a hormone level? Um, I'm not sure we can make any kind of clear connections like that, and it's always going to be way more complicated because there's a whole lot of other things going on. But I do think what was interesting here was what was the influence? What was the stronger, the stronger, louder voice in the crowd? I like to say with, mm. with the people. Um, Similarly, you know, when we did see the brain being shaped by hormones during pregnancy, it was shaping the brain to connect socially with other people. And, you know, we, we see similar children's experiences developing mental health problems going through puberty. We might say, oh, well, it's, a, it's the onset of hormones. 
little girls who go through puberty far earlier than their friends are far more vulnerable to develop mental yeah. health problems, whereas little boys who go through puberty are far more protected than boys who go through later. Right. Because what happens when a little boy goes through puberty, he gets taller and he rises in stature and gets bigger and hairier mm. and, you know, he's protected because his social status has risen. Yeah. So then we've got yes. children experiencing hormones for the first time, but it's the social context in which they're experiencing them that matters. So I think sometimes, you know, this is a, this latest, you know, I, I'm a little bit of, you know, the, the sort of the self-help culture that we have out there almost encourages often to look, reflect too much inwards for the solutions and the answers. Mm. Where often they're out there with, with you know, the connections we're making with other people. Um, yes. and, I, and, you know, I think sometimes too much self-reflection can make you a bit lonely. Mm. Um, because it just... So busy thinking inwards instead of reaching out and connecting outwards. So I did this show recently on ABC Catalyst where we were encouraging social connection um, in an, in an old, old, uh, aged care home. Mm. Um, because that can be a really lonely place. You can be yes. surrounded by people, but you can be incredibly lonely and and when we talk about connecting socially with other people, forming a meaningful group where you've got a collective purpose, like a choir, um, we know has really strong beneficial health outcomes. Mm. Um, But that's the thing. It's because you've got to reach out. You've got to kind of be working together and connecting, not just kind of looking inwards and thinking about what's happening inside um, and being so self-reflective and meditating and journaling. And it's all very inward and it separates you from other people. Mm. Um, so I, I think, you know, we, we, we are losing with all of our inward reflection, we're losing. And these, these things. Mm. Yeah. We're losing, um, we're losing our ability to be able to connect. And yeah. does that change? Yeah. And I, but even, I mean, self-help was encouraging people to look inwards and reflect and, and, and blame mindset and blame, um, you know, your, your, your thought patterns for things before these were around, um, these have pros and cons, risks and benefits like everything. Yeah, true. Um, so the self-help has risks and benefits. But I do think that there's such a loss of um, mm. kind of meaningful shared purpose and that kind of fostering sense of community by always looking looking inwards. Um, interestingly, we looked at the, how people's stress hormones change with measuring cortisol. It was really rough. It wasn't a proper science study. It was pretty rough and really little social experiment we did. But looking to see how social connection influenced people. Mm. Um, the first few meetings that people had, the first few choir practices, were stressful and their stress levels went up. But over time, over the six weeks, their baseline stress levels went down. And after that, mm. they swing together, their stress levels went down even more. Um, so that and that's a very immediate. You're going to see a very immediate response because cortisol is kind of you know reasonably quick responder, yes. um, not super fast, but sort of you know second phase response. So we are seeing um, you know we can influence our biology by connecting with other people, and I, and I think at every point in in the lifespan, the research in my book uncovered that. Um, that that's kind of where the vulnerabilities exist, and then therefore where the opportunities exist is um, is, is not always looking in, but no. reflecting out, yes. and, and, and asking for those those supports, and not just asking for them, going and giving them to other people. Um, again, asking for it is a bit, um, you know, creating connections. Mm. Yeah, but but giving the connections, not asking for them, but going out and giving them. You know, going out and joining and doing things for other people. Um, I, I don't think that there's enough focus on that today. 
I think mm. another really interesting thing that I was sort of thinking of before is with media as well and growing up in kind of the pop culture with different, you know, Hollywood films and things like that, that also like to depict women's certain phases in certain light. So like for growing up as a young woman, seeing different films and things like that, where someone on her period is like eating all the chocolate and is like cranky and those kinds of things that you, I feel like as women or as like young girls can be very impressionable and you kind of think, okay, well, that's the norm. Like you do look to Hollywood and you know, those things can be really influential. So then it kind of can be like fun that you and your girlfriends go through that of just like being cranky and like eating all the chocolate and all the fast food on your period. But then you might actually go through it and be completely fine. And you're like, Oh, well, I didn't experience that. So that's not true. That belief is, it's not a, it's not a true belief. Yeah. I I spoke to a researcher, Lauren Rose Warren, who um, has looked a lot at periods and pop culture and how, how that's portrayed. She said it's a period, it's a a, a period drama. I mean, who wants to know if girls have their period on the movie? It's boring. You know, I'm I'm not interested. Um, Some people might be, but you know, it's either this massive catastrophe. It's all about sucking your face chocolate and chocolate. Or, you know, you're staying in the back of your school uniform or something. There's no kind of, the, bi- the biologically mundane. <laughs> yes. That doesn't make for good TV or good movies. Um, that's fair enough. But I do think that, um, and, and certainly thinking about menopause now as my next life transition, you mm. only ever hear the bad stuff. You only ever hear, you know, how catastrophic it is and, um, and, and about the losses um, and about mm. the difficulties from people who have had negative experiences. But, like, if you're going to go and have a baby, you know, you, you only kind of hear about the horror, horrific births. Yeah. So, yeah, I do, I do think that there's a, the media portrayal of a lot of this is important. But then, I mean, I guess it wouldn't be very interesting just to show biologically mundane. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or people experiencing like, a wonderful birth. I love the yeah. way you called it the queendom years, stepping into being a queen. Absolutely. Mm. Where we're in our wisdom years. Mm. All the, all our life experience have, have shaped us into be these amazing, wise women. Yes. Yes. You know, we've got that to look forward to, really. Yeah. It's shaping us into... And why should we always, why should there always have to be a negative portrayal of each, you know, transition that we go through as mm. puberty? It should be a celebration of a, of a girl, of a young girl mm. into a woman. And then when we go into motherhood as well, a celebration. Yeah. So it's creating that new dialogue and also rewriting that story for women who haven't known otherwise as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, great. So Dr. Sarah, uh, we will share with our patients and with our clients, sorry, with our clients where they can find you, um, a link to your books also. There is another book that you've written as well. Uh, was it? No, I, okay. (laughs) I must have been. Pardon? It must. Yeah, no, no, it's got, it's it's been published in a few different countries under different titles. Ah. Was it Women's Brain, Women's Hormones? Oh, it was Demystifying the Brain. Yeah, that's same book. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay. They just put, it, put different covers and titles for different countries. Ah, mm. right. That's where I got the confusion. Mm. Just like J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Just like that. Yeah, no, there's only, there's only one book. I haven't quite um, got 
got the next big idea and I don't know whether I want to give up another year of my life to write another one. Well, you did a great job on this one. It's amazing. Absolutely. It's quite lonely. So the thing is writing a book is incredibly lonely. Mm. You're sitting down by yourself or standing at a desk by yourself for about a year. Great accomplishment. Um, other people, but I found, I found, I found it very isolating. Um, and it, and I, and I don't really kind of want to do that again. Yeah. I'd rather, you know, I did TV. That was way more fun. It's kind of team. It's a team. team yes. But kind of group pass. One's enough. You just, you only need to do the one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so now wrapping up, is there anything that you'd like to add or share with our listeners that we kind of haven't really discussed yet or? Oh, there's pretty heaps. I can talk for hours. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, um, I guess just to, to sort of share with people, I mean, I, I really went into this book with no other agenda than just sort of exploring the science about topics that, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really know. So I, you know, this isn't, I'm not trying to push any particular perspective mm. or point of view. There's a bit of a feminist streak through it, but I mean, that's because that's what the science kind of supported in a way. Um, and I and I suppose, yeah, for me, it's it, the message that came through the loudest and the greatest lesson I gained from writing a book, I went away and joined the local community theatre group because I wanted to not be alone anymore, is that, you know, our stories aren't just one of me and what's going on inside, but our, our life story is so enmeshed with other people. It's a story of we. And mm. to just reflect on that at every point in life and to understand um, the power of, you know, the stories we tell other people and we tell ourselves um, about our health you know, our health experiences and, and outcomes. And, and they are just as influential as our, as our biology. Yes. I love that. That That's is beautiful. So beautiful. Coming back to the importance of connection, mm. connection with others, community, and connection yeah. with self. Yeah, yeah. The thread. Yes. Well, we implore all of our listeners to go and grab Sarah's book and to educate yourself about the different phases of the women's brain. Not only girls out there, but also men as well. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of it for the yeah. For the boys, adolescents. Exactly. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. And also for the men that, you know, are married to women to understand them more when they go through menopause, (laughs) what's actually happening. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and for taking this time. We're extremely grateful and I'm sure our community will be too. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for your invite. Thanks, Thanks, Sarah. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.